Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I am Ricky Schlott, and Robbie is out traveling in India at the moment. So I am here with Robbie, uh, Robbie Suave, who is a, a really respected voice in the libertarian media world, someone who quite often when I research our segments on this show, I look up like, has Robbie said anything about this? Because it's a, always a touch point for me that can... Um, check my my non-libertarian tendencies a little bit um but i'm excited to have him on the show particularly because he wrote a book about a year ago called tech panic which everyone will know who listens to this podcast that i am in a major tech panic but um robbie definitely takes a different uh a point of view in in saying that we should slow down to just whole host dismiss social media as a terrible awful platform that should be uh, attacked with the cudgel of the government. So without further ado, uh, I'll welcome Robbie to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I, about, I guess a a year ago as well, with my co-host went to a debate that you did with Jonathan Haidt at the Soho Forum, um, where you discussed social media and whether the government should regulate it. And I found that super interesting as somebody who obviously has some skin in the game as a girl who grew up in, in social media. And I respect both of you a ton. And it was an interesting um, kind of clash of viewpoints. But for for listeners who aren't familiar with your work in your book, can you give a kind of broad overview about what, what Tech Panic argues? Sure. So I explored um, all of the reasons that people are coming up with to basically regulate social media. Uh, and by tech, I'm, I'm mostly specifically talking about social media platforms and um, that sort of thing. You know, I come from uh, writing about speech and civil liberties, those issues. So that was my interest in this. And, uh, I, you know, I found it very interesting that over the years, both kind of political sides, both Republicans and Democrats have become increasingly interested in this problem. We've seen the heads of major social media companies dragged before Congress multiple times to answer for like a litany of sins of wrongdoings, everything from, you know, corrupting our democracy to harming the mental health of young people to engaging in vast censorship, ideological censorship. You know, the, the complaints are, are different, although on the, uh, you know, the mental health issue, which I think you're particularly interested in, there is a lot of um, uh, agreement that it's a problem among both sides of the political class. So I wanted to explore what I think about those various criticisms of social media platforms, and then look at some of the proposed um, solutions and whether they would be good. And uh, unsurprising for my ideology, and I, uh, you know, it is partly philosophical, you could think that social media is a big, big problem, but that it would, you know, nevertheless be wrong for the government to do anything about it, because it violates some principle you have. I do think it violates some principle, uh, it, it clearly violates principles that I have. But I'm also just not persuaded that it is nearly as much of a problem. The problem has been overstated. And also I, I try to take a historical look in my in my book and go back through all the previous technological innovations and how they were greeted. And what you I think you come away from that. If you're very concerned about social media, I think your resolve to be very concerned about it would lessen a little if you knew that, you know, video games, TV, radio, the printing press, the written word, like every invention, every development of the communication space has prompted the exact same um, apocalyptic kind of rhetoric that this is the end of the world. And so of the criticisms of social media or, or the problems that people point to, uh, what what is among the very common ones? What is the least 
persuasive in your mind or, or just the, the most foolish argument for regulating social media? Uh, well, the least persuasive, I think, is a lot of, uh, frankly, a lot of the um, the ideas that it's corroding our democracy or it made like the 2016 election illegitimate. This is These are a lot of complaints you hear from major, I would say, liberal and Democratic commentators that you know, Donald Trump's victory was due to Mark Zuckerberg not paying close enough attention to what was crossing the news feed, that there were, the, you know, the, the kind of Russia narrative that you know, Russia managed to hack our elections by essentially propagating false narratives on Facebook. Um, this claim, which was really, I don't know if you remember, it was that that claim was being made everywhere in every major newspaper on mainstream cable news that Mark Zuckerberg was asleep at the wheel. And that's how we got Trump, this right wing nightmare, mm. from the liberal perspective. That argument has just totally, totally collapsed because it turns out that the Ru Russia absolutely did try to um, influence the discussion on social media. Russian bot farms took action that it, that is absolutely established. But there, what they did was totally insignificant and was not was not targeted narrowly at the you know you you needed to to target right swing voters in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin. That, that totally didn't happen. Claims by things like, you remember Cambridge Analytica, that whole scandal, all of that stuff, people made claims that just were not backed up at all. So that is that is the most, to my mind, discredited social media is really bad and really scary idea. And actually, I'll give you the, um, the social media is bad argument I put the most stock in is probably related to people's privacy. Like it is true that, that you know, people's, embarrassing people's like photos and videos that should be private um you know, revenge porn that kind of stuff like there there's a new category of crime that just didn't exist without social media you know i, I don't I, I would say i oppose like 95 percent of new laws in in the category of social media regulation but i take privacy very seriously and there are going to be some areas where legislation is required to like you know stop bad actors from obtaining people's private information or banking information or photos and videos. So, so that, that the privacy aspect of it, I, I think, you know, I would like to see sensible conversations about what regulations would make sense. And in that realm, what, what regulations do you think are the lowest hanging fruit that, that you think that even libertarians can get behind? With, uh, with specifically with photos and videos, uh, again, I, I mentioned revenge porn the other minute, there are, um, I, I think similar to like almost copyright rules, like sites can get like if a website violates a copyright by having an image up that they're not allowed to have under the Copyright Act, they have like a certain amount of time to delete it before action gets taken. And that seems to work pretty well. So something like that, because you do occasionally get into, I mean, this is not like a such a common problem, but it's happened to people, you hear horror stories of their photos or videos or private information being available on some obscure website. Most of the major social media platforms do take down these things. But um, but because of the liability protection that social media platforms have, sometimes they aren't technically obligated to take action against content that really we all virtually everyone agrees they should have to take action against. So I would be OK with tweaks on those couple fronts. So on the front of um, social media and mental health, um, obviously, like I have this is a place where I should be checking my personal biases a little bit more. I've, I feel very fortunate. I'm 23 and I, I had. Instagram when I was 11, I didn't have any really major consequences of it personally, but I, I think I definitely observed at least anecdotally in my friend groups, people that, that 
moved towards crevices of the internet, like Tumblr, um, that there is just a probably a, a correlation, not necessarily a causation, but definitely a correlation with their with poor mental health outcomes. And one thing that I find interesting is is that if you look at general screen time statistics, there's a very low correlation between poor mental health outcomes and screen time usage. But if you isolate it for for young girls on social media in particular, that correlation rises considerably. How persuaded are you firstly by the fact that that screen time could be playing a role in um, Gen Z's mental health crisis, particularly with young women? And then secondly, what, if anything, do you think should be done about that? Sure. And look, I, you know, I did this debate with uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt. I respect Jonathan Haidt tremendously. He's an incredible thinker. He's done great work. I appreciate the way he's having this conversation. Um, you know, he's he's very, been, very open to criticism on this front. And I am not, you know, discounting the expertise that he and others have brought to the subject. Um, at Reason, uh, Reason Magazine, where I work, we have run a, uh, a freelance piece by a statistician who looked at the 300 studies that he often, that Haidt often cites in his favor as showing, as suggesting that there is a, a problem. This statistician is way smarter than I am, found a lot of problems with a lot of these studies, found good reason to actually disregard tons of them for just having having made like basic errors. Uh, again, these are not studies that Haidt did. These are studies that he's looking at to say that maybe there might be a problem here. So I don't know. I, I certainly think social media can be bad for the mental health of some people in the same way that gambling is very bad for some people. But most people can go to the casino and not like give away their life savings, right? There's a tiny number of people who should not gamble. They're addicts at it. And that's true of all sorts of, you know, substances. Some are more alcohol and some drugs are more broadly addictive than others, but actually most people can use them and be pretty much fine. I think, frankly, social media probably belongs in that category, even among young people. I think you hear a lot about the young people who are using it too much. Like anything done in excess can be bad for you. Like literally anything. Do I agree with and support parents placing limits on their kids' social media time if it's a problem for them? Absolutely. If I had been left to my own devices as a teenager, I would have played video games 24 hours a day. But I was only allowed to play one hour of video games on weeknights by my mother, and that pretty much worked out. I understand that it is slightly more difficult, maybe more than slightly more difficult, to, to place limits on social media because of how easy to access phones are, and I'm not a parent. I have to. I have to, you know, disclose that that I, I don't. I haven't had to deal with these problems with my own um, children or something. But I. I. It doesn't seem to me so insurmountable a task to say, yeah, no phones at the dinner table. No phones when it's bedtime. We're going to keep them somewhere else in the house. And I think that would be plenty beneficial for a lot of people. You know, in terms of you say you hear anecdotally from friends. Again, I. I I'm sure this is the case that some young people, and in particular, it seems. Some young women um, with specific sites like Instagram, there was some evidence of that. Again, it was still a minority when the you know when the that the whistleblowers information came up. Francis Haugen with the internal um, polling at Meta that they found that in, that using Instagram was bad for teenage girls. But actually, it was like it was not the majority of girls surveyed there. It was it was a minority. So there there is a certainly a group of people for which extreme social media use can be bad for them. I don't find that to be a surprising result. And I don't think that means it's bad for everyone. And I certainly don't think that means 
the government has some role to to step in. Because again, there's gonna be a lot of kids who are enjoying, who are using social media responsibly, who are benefiting from those uses, who use it to connect with their friends or maybe, you know, help with their homework, become educated about the world. I I make a I produce a, a news show for YouTube, but there are clips of it available on TikTok as well. I think it's hopefully I, I think it's a, a good show. I, I hope young people stumble across it on, on TikTok. I, I know in fact that they do. Um, I would not want to cut off I mean, in fact, I think it's like it's unthinkable for me to cut off people under 16, just all of them, millions, billions of them from access to the modern world because a minority of users have an excess problem that is possibly, probably harming their mental health. Would you not concede, though, that within the realm of teenagers, it's it's certainly a significant plurality and when taken in in pair with the genuinely adverse mental health outcomes and, and self-harm and suicide, that there there should be at least an, an increased attention paid to that. Because I have to say, like, even with, I don't know if it's just because these platforms are just so financially incentivized to be addictive to young people. But like, even, I, I mean, I hear from parent after parent, just how difficult it is to put guardrails on it. I myself am also not a parent. I was definitely a kid who like somehow managed to wiggle more social media time into my schedule from my own parents. Um, my begrudging parents who probably will not enjoy listening to this podcast. Um, they did a good job. I'm turned out. Okay. But, um, like, do you, do you think that there's like, what attention should be paid to this issue and what solutions beyond the fact that it seems as though parents, especially post pandemic, I would say, are really struggling considering kids were locked up. And I think really developed some addictions to these platforms. Is there a role for, for schools? Is there a role for educators here? Like, like how, if not governmental, what other solutions are there to at least try to figure out how to find a healthier balance for this? I would hope you would concede plurality, at least of young people. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's a plurality of young people, frankly. Like, I know a third, I, I, of, I, a third of teenage girls to me is a plurality. No, a third of teenage girls. What? Who who responded to the um, the Facebook internal data saying that Instagram made their their mental health or their self image worse? Wasn't it a third? I'm I'm quoting that off the top of my head, but I would I would say that's a significant. That's a plurality. If you surveyed all teenage girls and asked them whether school makes them feel happier or depressed, what do you think the number of that would be? I think it would be like way more than half. I think it would be like two thirds. Mm. I mean, we're not banning school. I mean, like there's so much that can make young, young people are, look, young people are dealing with, you know, changes in their bodies and developments and the pressures of, you know, what's to come next. It's stressful to be a young person. Um, I think we've become way more open as a society to acknowledging mental illness and trauma and talking openly about it. I think destigmatizing uh, mental health struggles has broadly been a good thing. I think we've perhaps taken it so far that people are inclined to see more garden variety struggles um, to round them up to mental health problems and crises. Um, I agree with you on that. Honestly, some right sometimes for clout. In fact, Jonathan Haidt and I agreed on this. We used to talk a lot about how this was exacerbate, you know, trigger warnings and all that kind of stuff was uh, was what well, was a threat to free speech. But also was, you know, about a kind of young person um, uh, convincing them that they were convincing themselves they were suffering from this because it was, you know, trendy to do that. Um, I think that accounts for not all, but some of the phenomenon we're seeing. You know, school being a young person, it's always been hard. Aspects of it have decreased, have have gotten better. 
know, if you were, we're talking a lot about young girls, but if you were a young boy, violence was a significant part of the young male experience until that, that has gone down as schools have, I mean, it's, it's not gotten rid of in schools. There's a lot of struggling schools where you still see a lot of violence, but you know, by and large, the everybody beats up everybody thing has our tolerance for that has gone way down. So that's just a way of saying like, there are always problems um, that young people face. And when I, when I look at some of the studies, I often see, it often seems that, yeah, young people who are use social media way too much, it's not good. I'm like, I'm not disputing that. I, I think it's fine to put guardrails. In. I think schools, I think Jonathan Haidt has said that schools should not use, um, you know, should experiment with not allowing laptops and phones or something in classrooms. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that should be forced on them, but, but if they think that would be beneficial, of course they should do that. I just don't, I just don't want to discount, you know, we're, we're finding people using these things badly. Also, we can't discount the pandemic. You just brought that up. Like I would have opposed, I, I think so many of the policies forced on young people made their mental health, I, I made my mental health worse. I absolutely understand it. I couldn't even imagine having my school experience ruined by the pandemic. I, I, I would have I lost my mind. I was losing my mind already. So I, 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 that has been so bad. Can you imagine, I mean, going through that experience with like more stricter regulation or even prior to the invention of social media? I, I think social media was broadly a welcome phenomenon of some way for people and young people to keep in touch with their friends and, and, and engage. And, and you know, all, all the platforms are not the same either. Some of these platforms are more allow creative expression and a lot of collaboration and, and those kinds of things. So it just, it, it often seems to me like we're, for, we're focusing on a downside for some users. And so in terms of regulating and, and wanting to stay away from that, how, like, what do you make of the fact that so many of these social media companies and, and their, these executives are actively asking to be regulated by the government? Like, how, how do politicians avoid that when they're, they're showing up and they're saying, actually, we want to hand over the reins in some way, shape or form? Yeah, I mean, I think they're just straightforwardly responding to incentives. Like they want to be the ones that write the regulations so that they're yeah. easier, they're favorable to their companies. I mean, Meta has supported changes to Section 230, the statute that provides liability protection to the platforms um, in a way that would have harmed. I mean, this was this is going back to the pre-Elon Musk, but in a way that very obviously would have harmed Twitter because to, like they wanted they wanted a change that would mean that social media platforms would have to employ many, many, many more content moderators. And mm -hmm. Facebook's the bigger company. It already has way more content moderators or did at the time. Now Twitter has, I think, even fewer because Elon Musk fired all of them. But, uh, but like it, it would have just been, it, it would have been in the same way that Walmart wa like supports higher minimum wage because it prices out all their competitors. Um, is very much the same phenomenon here. And, and it, I mean, they're saying they want regulation, but they want to be in the conversation with Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley and whoever else so that they can steer the, re the regulation in a way that's favorable to them. I mean, this happens over and over again. These crusading anti-monopoly, antitrust um, senators and legislators, you know, look at who's headquartered in their district. They routinely will find a way to not include them in whatever regulation. There was a great example of this. I think it was Amy Klobuchar and um, uh, what's the what's the big company that's is it Target that's in Minnesota? It's something like that. That uh, mm -hmm. that was just. I, she wrote this regulation that just it was so it, it was hilarious how it went out of its way to exempt that company, the firm that's in her state, from competition. 
And what do you make of this, um, to me, oftentimes surprising bipartisan nature of a lot of these bills, uh, these social media bills? Like, I think you often see senators or, or Congress people who are pretty like diametrically opposed on everything, everything else except for somehow this issue from time to time. Why do you think this seems to be a middle ground for even sometimes those on the extremes? Frankly, I think Republicans who are getting on board with this are like shooting themselves in the foot, which is a very typical thing for Republicans to do. In terms of, and I'm talking specifically about Republican um, criticisms of big tech as being censorship inclined and being ideologically biased against conservatives, which I, I absolutely agree. We can find, we could we have tons of examples of the platform's being unfair to conservative speech or right-wing speech or contrarian speech or whatever we want to call it, libertarian sometimes, you know, dissident speech. Absolutely agree. Now, we now know that a lot of those examples were actually motivated by pressure from the federal government, thing, which had been revealed by the Twitter files, my own work on what Facebook did. Um, actually, it's wild how much of the censorship I, I feared had been freely chosen by private companies was actually like they were browbeat into it by literal federal bureaucrats. Um, but set that aside for a moment. Social media overall is good, I think, for dissident perspectives because it, it, is, a, it is a way around the, you know, the manufactured consensus of the mainstream, of the liberal mainstream media. It's been good for, for I mean, think about how many, like, j- just sticking with, you know, conservatives, there's so many, you know, um, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, Town Hall, The Daily Wire, The Washington Examiner, The Federalist. There's like 20 of these of these websites that all got big because of traffic from Facebook uh, or from Twitter or from social media. So if you're if you're someone whose views fall outside the liberal mainstream media, you you should be so thankful to the existence of social media, which made all this possible. You do not want to go back to a time period before social media when there was there was no way to get the word out, and we are we're all reliant on a handful of of news sources that had their own uh, uh, biases. So, so if you're a, a Republican who's supporting greater regulation of these platforms, and the specific regulation they're often supporting that changed to Section two thirty that would make the platforms more liable for the speech, that yeah, is that's not like one that an, I'm it's an immediate recipe for the platforms to do way more censorship, moderation, whatever you want to call it. I fully, I absolutely understand why Elizabeth Warren wants to do this. Elizabeth Warren hates non-liberal perspectives and wants them shut down more. Her and other Democrats send letters to the social media companies all the time saying, hey, you have this right-wing news channel or whatever is, thri- is, is spreading on your platform and we want it shut down. They're, be- they're honest about what they want mm-hmm. to do. Why Republicans are joining with them to achieve that result honestly baffles me. I, I wish I could sit down each of them and say, you know, if we do this right, that will mean less of your content going viral and being read and being seen. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, that sort of um, like job owning social media companies, did you a follow at all um, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya's a victory in court recently against the federal government on yes. First Amendment terms. I'm curious, so like, what what do you make of of that case? What what sort of precedent do you think that sets for for how speech on social media platforms um, exists going forward? I mean, it felt pretty huge to me. 
It is huge. I think it's a very important case. I'm eager to see it eventually make its way up to the Supreme Court so that we can get clearer guidance from the justices on what level of contact between government actors and social media moderators is consistent with the First Amendment. But yes, this was a huge problem. Um, you know, this is an area where I think a lot of us are aligned in agreement that what the the federal government did with respect to um, the 2020 election and COVID was horrible in terms of trying to limit the discourse about it in terms of, I, I mean, the it's, it's truly, it's crazy what they did. All these FBI agents who were flagging joke tweets about the election or about Hunter Biden for deletion to social media companies who were flagging, um, you know, the, the CDC got in on this with COVID and um, vaccine hesitancy and all sorts of things. Um, often, now we've seen the emails where often this, it's, it's revealed, you know, at first we didn't know. We thought, well, maybe the social media companies hate, hate free discourse and were, you know, gleefully wanted to censor all this stuff anyway. Turns out they didn't. It turns, you can read their emails. They yeah. were very concerned. They did not want to do this. They, they knew that Mar Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey didn't want to do this. And, uh, and, and they disagreed. They said, what they're telling us to do is just wrong. They're, they're saying this is that we, we should delete some false info, but they're misidentifying. These people aren't, aren't bots. They're real people having discussions. But what happened is over time, they became so afraid that, I mean, the government became so threatening and the government was using the mainstream media to extort them. Say, well, if you don't take down this account, we're going to, you know, published a report saying that, um, that uh, you know, this many people are dying of COVID because you won't do, you know, more of this kind of work. So they felt very, very threatened because of it. So anyway, this court case speaks to exactly that problem, jawboning. Is, is it constitutional for federal bureaucrats to threaten social media companies in this way? Um, I would like to see much stricter limits put in place. I suspect that our Supreme Court which is very pro-free speech. We have a really good Supreme Court on 1A. It's gotten better and better and better over the years. I suspect they are going to have a huge problem with what the State Department, the White House, the CDC, the FBI, and on and on and on have done. And that will be, that will be good because a, a lot of this was the fault of the federal government. Speaking of those emails and the internal communications, I'm for me personally, when I read them uh, during like the Twitter files release portion of time, it definitely like shook me from my my fallacy <laughs> of thinking that all of the social media people were very very bad evil censors. I'm curious, did, were you surprised by by the the tone of the internal conversations? Yeah, I was, and I guess I shouldn't have been because you know I'm very I'm very anti government. It was almost like it was almost like a relief because. Obviously, it was going to be a problem if in the market, a bunch of major firms are freely choosing to harshly limit the discourse. That's going to be, I, I'm going to be in the position of having to defend that as someone who's just generally defending market actors being allowed to do whatever they want. So, you know, eventually one tires, even though I'm, I consider myself principled, so I was going to do it anyway, but one tires of, of saying, well, they have a right to do this very bad thing I don't like. I think this thing is very bad, but they have a right to do it. Saying that over and over again. And I know it's not persuasive to people. I know people eventually go, okay, but I don't like that thing. I don't want them to do it. So then when it turned out, they were like, literally the government put a knife to their throats and said, you're going to do this. It was like, wow, uh, that, that did happen. I, I, that like feels like a convenient excuse I would make, but I can see all the emails where the companies did not want to do it and felt like they had no other choice. 
because the G-men were coming for them. So it was, uh, in a way, it was a comfort. <laughs> yeah, I I very much felt the same way. Um, one other thing I'd love to ask you about is, do you have any um, like particular suspicion of TikTok? And it's the fact that it is a Chinese company and, and it, it has different um, parameters on on how their young people can use it. And I would argue like of social media platforms probably has among the lower utilities for like actual enriching experience just in in my view um do you is there anything about about the origins of tiktok or or the kind of shadiness of of it as a company in general that that makes you more suspicious of it in the scheme of of social media platforms and and how we should address it sure um i mean i'll say look i'm a libertarian not a full-on anarchist um i don't think uh so i i accept that like the purpose of government is like, government has a, a right to arrange our national security. Right. And um, like, like I think it is appropriate for instance, for government um, actors to communicate with social media companies about like organized crime and terrorism on the platform. I, I, I think it's, it's not objectionable. I, in fact, I don't think anyone would find it objectionable necessarily if the state department talks to Facebook, for instance, about uh, we, this is an ISIS-affiliated group that maybe you should do something about. I mean, obviously, this this could be bad in some way if they started randomly accusing people who are not ISIS of being in it. I'm not saying it's not totally unproblematic, but it's it's probably a legitimate use of, of government action is what I'm saying. So, you know, in, in theory, being concerned about TikTok, which is, right, which is a Chinese company, and, and there's a lot of concerns about the data being shared with the Chinese government. I look, I, I'm hearing all that. That's fine. But especially after what we've learned from the Twitter files, et cetera, like the amount of un, un, non ideal forced interactions between a government and a social media, it's been so bad on the US domestic front and so, so pervasive that like this seems like you're trying, people are trying to say, oh, this is a sinister foreign threat. Like, okay, maybe. But what's been going on here is so bad and has been so compromising. And so like, you know, people are, are I think people are afraid that, you know, what if the, the Chinese government, and, and they do this, right? The Chinese government forces TikTok to censor certain topics and you have to avoid, like they, they absolutely do that. But also the US government has done that on every platform uh, on, on very important issues. So I, I'm so concerned about what we're doing and we have some power over what we're doing. Or like we can limit our government. Obviously, it's not ideal that China controls this and can and can have influence on the discourse there. But I, I, I'm certainly not like overly worried about it. And I, I don't know that I agree with you that it's the most it has the least utility. I mean, people again, I would news, say among the least, I would I would think. I, just, I, I mean, I know people who who are commentators who who make informational news for young people with huge followings on TikTok. That, that grew on TikTok and, and that's how they, they reach people. And I, I think it would be a shame if that was all done away with. And then, and, you know, then none of the, the policies put forth to deal with this have been good at all. I, I think even, even people who are very alarmed about TikTok have agreed that whatever Lindsey Graham had come up with was just going to put the government in charge of all social media companies and, and, and would actually invest our own authorities with vast spying powers. So I would say I'm, I'm, like, I, I'm open to hearing... Um, arguments for why TikTok is uniquely dangerous and something bad. But a, a lot of the, the, the things ascribed to it, I just, 
I just haven't witnessed the whole like, oh, it's it's digital fentanyl. It's it's like addicting. The, the, the Chinese don't let their own kids access it. Well, the, the China's an authoritarian government. They don't let their people access free speech. And right, that that's not a good thing. We shouldn't. We we don't want to emblem uh, mirror that. We we that's everything we're against. Like we we don't we do something different. We don't. Our government doesn't have broad restrictions for what kind of content people are allowed to interact with because we have a First Amendment. And by the way, that's at the background of all of these conversations. Even all of these proposals, even at the state level to, you know, restrict social media to under 16 or requires all of that kind of stuff. You know, if that goes forward, eventually it's going to get to the Supreme Court. And I have to say, I very much doubt that they're going to end up being constitutional. Do you, I mean, remember when, when the state of California tried to put limits on uh, violent video games being sold to young people, to kids. The Supreme Court, in a decision authored by Scalia, you know, the most like conservative justice of that time period, said this was laughably unconstitutional because mm-hmm. you can't. That was for kids. They said the state could not stop you, could not stop uh, video game sellers from selling these games to kids. I my guess is you don't have to like it, but my guess is a very similar conclusion will be drawn with social media. Yeah, this is definitely um, it's been an interesting place for me to find myself because I I just wrote a book with Greg Lukianoff, who's like the Mister First Amendment, uh, with a foreword by John Haidt, who's Mister Social Media, and I'm definitely like very uh, <laughs> I feel torn between two <laughs> two worlds, and then and then I have my own baggage that they bring to this which is funny but um it's it's interesting to see people who who really agree on on broad strokes philosophically disagree on this issue in particular but on the on the front of the reason why i think tiktok is uniquely concerning there's two reasons one is i think that that short form content can only be so enriching and i I, i'm concerned about like for first really young kids who are on the platform what this sort of rapid fire dopamine stuff means for them doesn't that doesn't necessarily make it an argument to to censor or to to regulate it but i do think that there's something to be said about the decline in reading times and stuff i mean i i wouldn't go as far as to say that that's a direct causal link but i i know for myself my own attention span is probably shortened considerably by by growing up uh, with social media but i would say the the biggest thing for me with the, with the tiktok thing that concerns me is that it's so uniquely not choose your own adventure. Like even if you do follow some intellectual or newsy channels, you just show up on the app and then it just starts taking you through whatever the heck shows up on your For You page, which I think is, you know, I mean, if you go on YouTube, you you select something, maybe the algorithm suggests it to you. But I, I do think that there's that sort of format does create like a PSYOP potential for China in a way that, that other sort of social media formats uh, would not necessarily. Well, it's trying to steer you to more content that it thinks you want to engage with, right? Yeah, I mean, but I would say it's uniquely just hands off the wheel. Like you don't, you almost don't really engage with it. It just kind of shoots you down whatever rabbit hole you go down. I don't know. Like I just, I, I have not seen... Like on Twitter, for example, yes, the algorithm sets things up, but a lot of people do click into like longer form articles or on YouTube, you you might subscribe to several channels and open up the homepage and then pick something for yourself. I do think that there's something uniquely concerning about a, a social media platform that pretty much takes the reins for you. Yeah, it's just, but it's nice not to be bored as much as we all used to be. Like, <laughs> 
when I was a kid, I want to be bored had, more so badly. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you can, you can just put your phone in the drawer and, you know, go out for a run. But like, we used to just have the TV on all day and all night and, you know, just stare at the TV. And, th- and then I wasn't even, you didn't, we didn't always have on something or couldn't find something you really wanted to watch or you'd, or you just had the same movie on, you'd watch 20 times because there wasn't, there was no way to like exactly select what you wanted at the time. And like, that wasn't enriching. That was, you know, that was just time wasting. And it was time wasted, not do like, at least now I'm, if I just scrolling, you know, short videos on whatever platform, like I'm seeing a lot of new things that are jokes or it's like, it's more, it's, I don't know, it's more, it's more interesting. And then when you're tired of it, you can just put it away. Um, I understand some people struggle with that and we can talk about what can help them. But I I just don't, I don't think it's, I, I do not want to bring the government in to um, start making these choices on behalf of people. Uh, again, for a minority of people, I think have a problem with this. Most people I think are probably using them because it's beneficial and they like it. And I don't want to come between people and things that they quite obviously, quite obviously like. I mean, I don't even, I don't even think like, again, I'm, I'm a libertarian, so I don't think alcohol should be illegal. I don't think cigarettes should be um, illegal. Those things are way, way more addictive and way more harmful. I mean, cigarettes have killed millions of people. Social media has maybe credibly killed a few people, maybe. I don't If you're like looking into the, I don't know, some, some very directly attributable suicides or suggestion of suicide by, you know, there's a couple ambiguous cases, but when people use this language, this like this addictive again digital fentanyl, I'm like, where there aren't where the where the body cigarettes killed millions of people, and I still think people should be able to have them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely by and large agree with you, and the reason that I I was particularly interested to have this conversation is because like I, I feel like it's so easy to get even if you have libertarian tendencies pulled towards something that is relevant to you in your own life in terms of the um kind of gravity towards regulation so it's it's a place where i definitely want to check myself and i also i mean i consistently find myself being asked by parents as like one of the the few kind of semi-adult zoomers who kind of knows what it's like to be a kid growing up with this (laughs) stuff but like apparently is an adult now somehow but one thing that i i mean just consistently for me like i i do think that there are huge problems that come with social media and i think even less so social media but the the displacement of time that could be spent doing other more healthy things. Um, but by, by and large, like I, my, my take on this is I would like for some of the negative outcomes that I believe my sub generation experience to be a cautionary tale. And in terms of like actually preventing that for a next generation or having the next generation of parents, maybe be less amenable to the arguments of like, Oh, if I don't get Instagram, I'm going to be like totally excluded sort of thing that we all did. Um, so I, I definitely ag- agree with you in broad strokes on this, but one final question for you that I, um, just is far more general. Um, like I know, for example, your editor in chief, Catherine is, is fully an anarchist and like, that's a viewpoint that I don't share. And I'm always curious on the, the scale of libertarianness, like where, where do you as an individual draw the line in terms of like, what, where is the role of the government? At what point in time is do we cross a threshold into a point where in our domestic life, the government should get involved and, and how do we make sure we don't overstep that bound? I should say philosophically, I'm, I'm totally willing to go full anarchism. Probably. I'm just like in my old age, I, I try to, I concentrate more on 
pragmatic issues that I see like in the real world and which mostly I think are caused by more and bigger government. And like, we're so far from the point where we would have to have a serious conversation about like, oh no, have we limited government too much? I just, I don't think about it all that often, but I, for me, it's, you know, what is the legitimate role of government from a historical standpoint, from the standpoint of our founding documents, our constitution, what, it, what is it the government ought to do? And I think that government ought to provide us self-defense or defense from, from violence, from foreign countries, and then internally crime. I mean, I, I, like I'm not on the abolish the police category at all. I mean, I think police services could be provided privately on, 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 and are in a, you know, a variety of uh, places where there's private security. But, uh, but we, we need police services to be met. So as long as the, the government's legitimate use is a monopoly on violence for the purposes of protection from physical injury. So I, I am, I am absolutely fine with the government doing that. Um, I wish they would do it better, but yeah, I, I you know, like others, I see, um, a lot of, I live in a city, I live in Washington, DC. There's a, a actually crime here has the, the rise has been like meteoric this year. Um, it's a huge, huge problem that the government is not taking care of. Um, so I, there's a, it's, it's, it would be legitimate for the government to do more to confront the crime problem in uh, the city I live in and, and other cities uh, where it's a problem. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Ravi. And again, I'm Ravi, my co-host with the V, will know um, and will laugh when I say that. I quite literally, I, I'm always like, did, has Ravi written about this on Reason or have they talked about it on, on, um, on Rising? So where can listeners find you and um, follow your work? Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name. Uh, you can read my stuff at reason.com. And I also host a YouTube show for The Hill. It's called Rising, Hill Rising. You can check that out on uh, YouTube. And I was uh, honored to have this discussion with you. Thank you so much uh, for the the kind words. And it's always great to kind of check my uh, my what I think about, you know, social media with, uh, with someone who's younger and, and close, was closer, uh, more proximate to um, the issues that young people face with social media. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here.